Amen. <clears throat> Do me a favor and track down a Bible if you can. There should be some in baskets down by your feet. And get with me to John chapter 18. It's on page 879. And uh, with it being Holy Week and um, with all the things that we've got going on as a church, I kind of want to spell out what's happening today and where we're going together. So we're doing really a mini-series right now looking at Christ's journey to the cross, which will be today, and then to the crucifixion, which we'll do on Friday night this week. Um, we have a service here at 7 o'clock, so if you come back for a good Friday, we'll be here and we'll spend our time um, reflecting on the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then Sunday morning, we will celebrate the resurrection, and so hopefully you will come back with friends and family and and uh, you will come and, and uh, we'll spend some time in the Word reflecting on the fact that Jesus didn't stay dead, but that He is alive. And so we're going to spend some time doing that. And then the week after that, we're going to keep going in the, in the book of John and we're going to find Thomas. And Thomas, though he had experienced so much firsthand, um, he still had doubts. And so we want to invite our family and friends to come back and to kick the tires of the faith in a, in a greater way, and so we want to give them an opportunity to continue to pray and reflect. So this morning, we are looking at our King and His journey to the cross. So uh, let me pray, and we'll get to work. God, right now, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would use this time, that you would leverage this time to help us see who Jesus is. And we want God to hear your voice through all of this. We want to hear loud and clear your voice and what you want us to hear and what want to do in this moment. God, we believe that when you speak, things change. And so we're inviting you, God, by your spirit to come in and to speak and change our hearts and our lives. And we, got, we ask God that you would leverage this time to help prepare us for Easter, um, that we would, throughout the course of this week, be marked by the fact that we can't stop thinking about our King. And for anyone in here who has not yet bowed their knee and surrendered to him, would you, in this morning, in this moment, help them to see the beauty of our Savior and our King Jesus? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to see here the interrogation, and that's uh, the end of chapter 18, those, the, verses 28 through 40. We're going to see the interrogation and then the coronation. Uh, so we've got a king, and he's going to be coronated, and so we want to follow the storyline. We get some background in verse 28. It says, Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas, Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morn morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So the Jews are taking Jesus, they're bringing him before Pilate, the, the Roman governor, and they're going to ask for his head, they want him executed, and they're going there, and, and they do not enter into the palace because this is actually a religious week for them. There's a thing called the Passover, and if you've read the Old Testament, you've maybe heard the story before, but the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and God did some things to release them from that slavery, from that oppression, and from that situation. He saved them. But that was at the hand, the mighty hand of God, performing incredible works in their lives, and, and there were ten different plagues. And the final one was the plague of death. The angel of death visited the camp, and God said, here's the deal. Here is the way that you could be saved, that you could be liberated, that you could be set free. Find a lamb, a lamb without blemish, and sacrifice that lamb. And take the, la take the blood of that lamb and put it on your doorposts. Put it on your doorpost, and then take and roast that lamb and eat it in haste, because tonight the angel of death will visit the camp, and anyone without that blood will not be spared. The firstborn will die. And so they did that, and they were, 
They were spared and they were saved and they were able to flee from Egypt. And from that moment on, they said, this is a religious big deal. Every year, we will remember how God saved us at Passover. We will remember how God spared us and liberated us and set us free. And so though they are bringing Jesus before Pilate and they're asking for him to be murdered, they do not even go into the house because they want to be able to observe the Passover. Um, I heard uh, Don Carson, Dr. Don Carson, preach on the ironies of the cross. And this was several years ago now, but these ideas haunt me. I can't stop thinking about the fact that there are so many ironies here. That, that there are things that are happening that on the surface level you go, okay, they're trying to do this, but in reality, the greater truth is, here's what's really happening. So what you have is an irony here. You've got the religious leader saying, hey, we want to be very careful that we don't contaminate ourselves and miss out on this religious celebration of how God saves us. And so they're bringing Jesus to Pilate, but they're not willing to go into a Gentile's home because they want to be able to have that meal. And they bring him there before him, and then they ask him, to execute this man. And so we move into a conversation. And this conversation is kind of like Pilate talking to them and then going behind the curtains backstage and having these little dialogues with Jesus. And it moves back and forth. But the big question that kind of comes to the surface is, who's in charge here? Who's in charge here? Is it the Jews? Is it the Jewish law? Is it Pilate? Who is in charge here? So let's track with it as we move through the text. In verse 29, this is the first conversation, <clears throat> it's between the Jews and Pilate. So, verse 29, so Pilate came out to them and he asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. First conversation, the question emerges, who's in charge here? The Jews are bringing Jesus, saying, kill this man for us. He's saying, what are the charges against him? And they're snarky. They're like, look, we wouldn't even be here if this man weren't a rebel, if this man weren't a criminal. And he said, well, fine, if you've got such a strong case, why don't you try him and execute him? And they reveal, we don't have that authority. We don't have that jurisdiction. We don't have that ability to take this man ourselves and execute him. We need your permission, and we actually need you to fulfill this request of us. So we're not sure who yet is in charge, but let's keep tracking with this thing. The next conversation, Pilate goes backstage now, and he begins to talk to Jesus. Verse 33, Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and come into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Here's what's going on. We're, we're trying to figure out as we're tracking with this story, who's in charge here? Who is it that is able to make things happen? And, and you, you might think, okay, is it the Jews? Well, no, they, have to, they don't have jurisdiction here. They're, they're bringing him to, to Pilate. So is it Pilate, you know, the Jewish 
uh, nation is under the Roman Empire at the moment, and so is Pilate the one who's in charge? And what we find out is this incredible irony. The person who's in charge in this moment is the one who's on trial. The person who is in absolute control of the moment is Jesus himself. And we get those clues if you look back at verse 32. John, as he's telling the story, gives us a little comment. Here's what's really going on. God's in charge. Verse 32, this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. We're watching the story unfold, and we can be anxious and go, how's this going to play out? How is he going to get set free? How is he going to get out of this situation? He's been arrested. They're trying to execute him, but what's going to happen next? And the Bible tells us God is in charge right now. And the greatest authority is not the Roman official, it's not the Jews, it's not the Jewish law even. It is this man who is standing on trial in this moment. He was fulfilling everything that was written about him and his authority as he indicates he is a king, but his kingship is different. It doesn't look how they would expect. He has authority, but that authority is being exercised in a different way. And this is important for us because authority has a huge influence on the way that we live our lives. The things that we think have the most power will influence the choices that we make and how we live. And if it is a religious system, if it is religion, if religion is the greatest authority in our lives, we will make decisions according to how we think that religion should be played out. And Christians can do this as well. We can think that to, to the greatest authority is to do Christian things, is to follow the Christian rules and regulations. And what happens when you just allow religion to be the greatest authority in your life? You could have the Savior right under your nose, and you could think he was worthy of death. Don't allow for religion to be the greatest authority. Don't allow for politics to be the greatest authority. A lot of us kind of walk around thinking, man, if there were a political system that could accomplish all that needs to happen in this world, I could fully get on board with it. Pilate is a Roman official. We see him in this story. We recognize, no, that authority isn't sufficient either. We're not going to place our trust in politics. We're not going to place our trust in religion. The greatest authority is right here. It is Jesus himself. He is the king. His kingdom is not of this world. If it were, he would have flexed his authority in this moment and been set free. But he is the kind of king who is in this world, but not of this world. And that's exactly what he prays for his followers in John 17, just the chapter before. He's praying not that we would be removed from the world, but that we would live very intentionally in the world, set apart for God's purposes. And that's what Jesus is doing here. The irony is that as the story is unfolding, we find out the one who is actually in charge and powerful is the one who is currently arrested and held prisoner and about to be executed. We find out, too, that he has a mission, and he makes it very clear in verse 37. Pilate says, you're a king then, as he hears him ask a question. Isn't Jesus, he's like Yoda, isn't he? Like, you ask a question, he asks another one. It's kind of weird, but then he draws people into that. I wish I could do that. But, but here he says, you're a king then. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth, and everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So what's his mission then? It is to testify to the truth. Jesus has come in order to reveal who God really is and what God is up to in the world. And, and he's, he's able to say then, whoever hears his voice, whoever sides with him, whoever understands that truth actually gets what God is up to. Whoever, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And so we, what, what we want to do then as a church is we want the voice of Jesus to be loud and clear. 
We, we, we recognize that a part of why we are a church and what we're supposed to do is to present truth to people and to help them to come to side with Jesus himself because the truth isn't just a concept. It's not just a bunch of ideas, but it's this person right here, Jesus Christ. He is himself the truth. So we find he's the authority, but he's also the one who reveals the truth. And then we see something about his ministry. And it's very incredible here, but we get this little foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to do. He's going to be a substitute for people who don't deserve it. Look with me at verses 38 and following. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there, and he said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. There's a, there's a, a thing going on in, in their religion where they're able to release one person at the time of the Passover. So Pilate says, I don't really know what's happening here. I don't know why you're so upset with this individual. He is the king of the Jews. You know, he's calling himself the king of the Jews, and he's saying, I'm just going to present him to you and ask you a question. You want me to release him to you? And they say, no way, not him. They can't even say his name. We don't want him. We want Barabbas. And we find out Barabbas is a punk. Barabbas, is, he, he's, a, he's a criminal. He's led a, a resurrect, a, an uprising, an insurrection there. He is somebody who is guilty and known to be guilty. And what happens here is this innocent man, Jesus of Nazareth, is incarcerated and then executed. Meanwhile, Barabbas, who is known to be a bad guy, gets liberated. What's going on there? Why is that an important part of the story? It's because John is foreshadowing this is what Jesus has come to do. That Jesus, the innocent one, is going to go to the cross and a bunch of punks like me are going to get liberated. A bunch of punks who are known to be guilty for not doing what God wants them to do, for treating God as if, as if he's insignificant. And he's going to, as a substitute, go to the cross as an, as an innocent individual and guilty people will be liberated and set free. That is the message of the gospel. Jesus has come, a part of his ministry is to set us free. And he does that by offering himself willingly as the one who, though he's innocent, is willing to pay the penalty for sin and death itself. He is our substitute. So the king has come, and, and, and we see him then as he's moving toward the cross. We see this incredible interrogation where the identity of Jesus is becoming real to us. He is incredible. As you look through this story, there are things that we can learn about his character and his ministry and what he is up to. But now we move to that coronation in chapter 19, verses 1 to 16. Now, coronation, forgive me, I've got two small kids, so everything kind of comes by way of, you know, animated movies. And uh, they, they watch Frozen, and if you guys remember on Frozen, there's a coronation day. And it's a day where the, the royal officials are going to take Elsa and announce her to be queen of Arendelle. And we've got that going on in our text here. We've got this royal situation going on where Jesus is being presented as the king of the Jews. Now, he's being mocked as it's happening, but it is a coronation. It helps us to realize the irony that, that though people don't see him in this way, this is the truth. He is the king. So look with me at verses 1 to 6, where the the innocent yet despised king gets brought forward. Verse 1 of chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. 
They clothed them in, in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in his face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you, and let it be known that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. We have this situation where they're bringing Jesus forward. First thing that happens is he gets flogged. And I think one of the reasons why Pilate does this is he's simply trying to appease the people. He's trying to you know, make an example of Jesus and say, don't cause any more trouble around here. I don't see you as being guilty, but they're very hostile, so I'm going to have you flogged, and then I'm going to bring you forward. So they see you after you've been beaten, and, and, and after you look rugged because of this flogging, and maybe then they'll take pity on you and, and, uh, and send you away. But that's not what happens. So, so they're mocking him. The soldiers put this you know, robe on him and this crown of thorns on his head, and they're mocking him. They're, they're saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they're slapping him in his face. They're, they're, they're openly mocking him. And I need to say something here about sin, because a lot of people nowadays think that sin is breaking rules. And it is, but it's so much more than that. Sin is not merely breaking rules. Sin is when you look at God and you think that he has no, nothing good for you. Sin is really, it's the, it's the despisal of God. It's the de-godding of God. It goes all the way back to the garden. When, when Adam and Eve, in, in a moment, they said, we don't, by their actions, we don't really want God anymore. We will be a God unto ourselves. We'll decide what we can and can't do. We'll decide, we'll define what life really ought to be like. That's what sin is. It's not simply trying to be a good person. A lot of people nowadays can think, I don't really deal with sin. I don't struggle. I, I've never you know, tried to purposefully harm anyone. I've never done anything that's super sketchy. But the reality is, all of us are dealing with this sin that we find here. What is it? Just like the soldiers, we look at Jesus and we go, we do not like you. You have no place in our lives. You, you think you're a king, but I, want, I don't want you telling me how to live my life. I don't want you calling the shots. Look at you. This is exactly what Adam and Eve did. It's what the soldiers are doing. It's what we do as well. And though we might never say it out loud with our actions, a lot of times we are treating Jesus with contempt. We are saying, oh, you have no place in my life. I'm the captain of my life. If you want to come on board with me, that's fine, but I rule this ship. And, and, and so sin really is this mockery and this hostility towards Christ. That is the essence of sin. And that's why God had to send his son to deal with it. It's something that we all face. I think it's, it's in every one of our hearts. It's the despising of the Lord, the belittling of him, and treating him as if he were insignificant. And so he brings him before the angry mob, and they look at him, and they go, crucify him. We want him dead. We don't think he should live. And then we find out his true nature. Who is this man? Who is this man who's causing all of these troubles? If you look at verse 7, the Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he, he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. 
And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no reply. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize that I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus responded, you would have no power unless it were given you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is greater is guilty of a greater sin. Here's, here's what's happening. All of a sudden, the, the identity of Jesus is made very clear. This is no you know, criminal that's just being carted before him. All of a sudden, it's dawning on him. This man is claiming to be the son of God. This man is God in the flesh. This man is, is identifying himself with the glory of God. And Pilate then realizes he's afraid. I, all of a sudden, it's clicking for him like, okay, this man is claiming to be the son of God. And he's saying, what have you done? Where, have you, where do you come from? And, and he's, he's, then he's threatening him saying, look, I, I have the power to free you or execute you. And Jesus very calmly replies and says, look, I've, the power that you have, the authority that you have is given by God himself. The one in that moment, again, who has the authority, who has the power is the one who's on trial. Jesus is in command here, and, and he is ruling this thing. And we're finding out then that this is the Son of God. This Son of God is standing on trial as an innocent man, and they're asking for his life. Crucify him. Crucify him. Look at verses 12 and following. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and he sat him down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is, is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Isn't this wild? This innocent king, this man who's claiming to be the son of God, this man for which Pilate can find no claim of his guilt, he, he can find no reason why this should, be this should be taking place, is willing to hand him over to be executed. But in here, the ironies show up big time. We've got here this reality that John is painting a picture of. Here's all that's happening. Just on the surface level, if you're looking at it, it looks like a man who's innocent is going to trial and going to be executed. But behind the scenes, what do we really find out? This man is in control of the whole thing. That he is doing exactly what the Father wanted him to do. That he is himself the truth, and by his truth, he is drawing mankind to the Father through him. We find, too, that he brings Jesus to the seat of judgment, which is fascinating, right? He brings Jesus out to the stone pavement, to this place of judgment, and, and Jesus in this moment is the man on trial. And they're looking at him and going, man, this guy, he, he can't, look at him, he's a mess, king of the Jews. He's standing at this judgment seat, or however this thing's playing out, but there's a day coming. Here's the irony. There's a day coming when Jesus is going to be at the seat of judgment, and everyone is going to have to come before him. And every knee is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess he is Lord. There's a day coming. The irony is, in this moment, he looks weak and helpless, about to be executed. But there's a day coming when he will stand at his judgment seat, and every single one of us will have to give an account for the life that we've lived, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess 
that he is Lord. Here's the other irony, and John keeps bringing it up. It's the day of Passover. It's the day of preparation for the Passover. It started early morning back in chapter 18, but now it's midday, and, and it's this day where they're supposed to be making preparations so that they can kill that lamb sacrificially and, and then roast it and eat it together. But what's really going on here? They, by their rejection of him, by their hatred, by their willingness to bring him before Pilate and demand his execution, what are they doing? They are bringing the true lamb of God right to the sacrificial table. They're bringing the true lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world, and they are offering him up. They're saying, take his life, this innocent one. They are, in this moment of Passover, they are fulfilling exactly what God wanted to do. They are doing what God was planning to do all along. In fact, John, the guy who's writing here a little bit later on, he has a vision of what it will look like finally in the end. He writes a book called Revelation, and in Revelation chapter 5, he gets to see something. And it's, it's, it's breathtaking because he's seeing inside the courtroom of heaven itself and he's seeing all of these visions and he's always grasping for words because it's hard to explain what that's like. But in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, it said, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain and it was standing at the center of the throne. This lamb of God, Jesus Christ, though he was slain, though he was executed, though he was crucified, one day will stand at the throne because he is the king. The irony here is that they're rejecting him as king. In fact, they say as much here. It's crazy. They say, we have no king but Caesar. We have no, these are the people of God who are supposed to have a pure allegiance to God himself and worship no other king and no other throne and no other power or principality. And here they're saying with their own lips, Caesar's our king. We don't want this man as king. Caesar can be our king. It's crazy, but here's what's happening. We are seeing the gospel on display that God in love has sent his son, and that son is perfect and innocent, and he was willing to lay down his life as a sacrifice for rebels like you and me. This is the gospel message. As we move toward Good Friday and toward Resurrection Sunday, as we think about these things, let it be known that Jesus is the one who came into the world to save sinners like you and me that by his sacrificial death and resurrection, if we place our faith in him, we can experience forgiveness and restoration. He is the one who is willingly able to go to the cross as the innocent man and, and be a substitute so we could be set free. And so I'm going to pray here in just a moment, but all of us in here, I hope that we've had that experience, that we recognize this man, Jesus Christ, and what he has done for us is the most beautiful reality in all of the world that he is the one who loved us to the, to the very end. And the gospel message is that Jesus is the son of God. He's the true king. He's the Passover lamb. And he willingly laid down his life on the cross as a substitute for the undeserving. And so what we need to do then is bend our knee to him and worship him. So let's pray. God, right now, we've spent some moments reflecting on the reality that you sent your son. And if we're honest, we can be a lot like the characters in the story who don't even realize the significance of all that's happening here. We can be cruising through a Sunday like today, and we can be hearing about these truths, and, and they don't even leave an impression on us. 
And we kind of dismiss you, and we think it's not, it's not that important, but in this moment, God, would you help us to see our Savior? Would you help us to see Jesus as the King, as the Son of God, as the one who has authority and power, and as the one who offers his own life for us? Lord, for anyone in here who's never bent their knee to Jesus and surrender, would you make them bold right now? Would you help them to go public with their faith and acknowledge that you are King, you are Lord? And would you help all of us, God, to appreciate the, the ironies of the cross, that you are willing to be humiliated and mocked and spit upon, you are willing to be flogged and ultimately crucified so that we could be forgiven. Let that never grow old. Help us, God, to appreciate that and help us to invite other people to know and cherish that beautiful truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.